And we have to fight that, that natural instinct for us to say, you know what, I just wanna live in solidarity with like-minded people, so I'm gonna find my camp. I'm gonna find my camp. And to fight against that natural instinct that says, I gotta find some sort of third way, some gracious third way. The way of Jesus is that Pharisees want to eat with him and prostitutes want to be around him. Why? Because he invites them to something greater. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. Our current series, Human Sexuality in the Bible, explores what scripture has to say on the topic of sex and our bodies. And here we find grace and truth as we consider marriage, singleness, sexual orientation, and more. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Jonathan Boer. My wife, Christine, and I have been attending Gateway for almost nine years now. We have two daughters, Amelia and Isabel. I've been serving for the past few years as a ministering elder here at Gateway. Our uh, scripture passage today comes from Titus chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for joining us today. I'm really glad that you are all here. If you haven't done this already, I would really love for you to have your Bible in front of you. And so if you got a smartphone, if you got a Bible, make sure you have that. Yes, it's going to be up on the screen, but I just love when you have your Bibles in front of you. So find Titus chapter 3. We're going to return to this. We're going to walk through it together. Put a tab there and also look for the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. I'm really excited about today because today we get to wrap up this series on human sexuality in the Bible, and we also get to consider the practical embodiments of all the things that we have learned over the course of the last two months. And it should come as no surprise to you, I've shared this with you already a couple of times, that we should never say something like, yay, I got the position right, if we haven't considered the practical embodiments of that position that lead to human flourishing in our midst. And so we have to always consider ourselves, what does it look like to help lead people to flourishing? How do I have to lean in? What is God calling me to do to contribute to that? And so in many ways, we get to roll up our sleeves today and say, practically speaking, what does it look like to do this well as the body of Christ? 
See, whenever it comes to moral issues, especially with respect to the topic of human sexuality, each of us has a natural propensity to create a false dichotomy of grace and truth, of celebration and condemnation, of religious left and religious right. And yet, what we see in Scripture is that Jesus, he doesn't tell us about a third way. He doesn't tell us about a balanced way. He tells us about an entirely different way than the polarization, the dichotomy that we often embrace. And we see this most clearly in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, which says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we are to be like Jesus. We are to be like Jesus. But I want to let you know something. Being like Jesus is an extremely lonely place. So as we walk through this series, or this message today, I, I want to reveal something to you when it comes to the dichotomy that we often create. So you have on the one side, you have the side of grace here on the left, and on the right you have the side of truth, and over here you have the side of the religious left, and here you have the side of the religious right. You have the side of celebration, you have the side of condemnation. And you're always going to feel the gravitational pull toward one of these two camps. And the reason for that is because all of us long to belong. We want that. And so we see just like dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people. These are people's heads, by the way. If you don't get my artwork, that, that, those are heads of people. And they're all here on the side. And we all want a place to stand we want to walk in solidarity with other people. And we see the masses here and the masses here. And yet Jesus calls us to something totally and radically different. And so here's the image I want you to have in your mind. Here's the mountain. And Jesus says to each and every one of us, climb the mountain. Come with me on this journey. Walk with me up this hill. But the problem is, up here, the wind gusts are much higher. And you're always going to feel the gravitational pull to jump back down to the other side. People are going to be drawing you to that. So to walk with Jesus, you're going to be constantly feeling like you're misunderstood. You're going to constantly feel alone and in lonely places. But Jesus is calling you to something wholly other. And by the end of our time today, I want you to see through the example of Jesus, what this looks like. And so you might recall all the way back in week one, we talked about these two polarized positions among Christians uh, in, in the vast majority of churches. So you have the religious right, which says we are in a culture war and we got to win the war for the sake of our family, for the sake of our kids, for the sake of our nation. We got to win the war. And there's hostility, there's anger, there's frustration. And oftentimes on this side, you, you feel like you're a truth teller. I'm a truth teller and I got to remember that I got to bring grace along for the ride as I proclaim with boldness the truth that Jesus has called me to proclaim. And then on the other side, on the religious left, you say we're called to the world's version of love and acceptance. That's what we got to do. We got to give more acceptance, more grace, more compassion. And in that way, we will show the love of Jesus. And the polarizations emerge. 
And this is an example of a group where they're spiritually aware, but they're often indifferent to sin. And so it should come as no surprise to you, I've, I've said this to you before, both of these are examples of anti-gospel nonsense. It is not the gospel to do this. We are called to something deeper. So here's how I want to close out the series. I'm going to give you a good old-fashioned three-point sermon. Um, I, I shared on Facebook this week, perhaps you saw this, that my, my personal favorite author and pastor, Timothy Keller, he, he passed away this past week. And uh, even though I've never met him before, I feel like I knew him. And he always gave three-point sermons. And so, Tim, this is for you. Three-point sermon just for this congregation. So I developed three questions this past week. And only late in the week did I realize that all three of these questions are actually tied to our values as a church. And so let's just review this very quickly together. We say that we want to be a church that is biblically serious, devoted to the word of God, community-driven, devoted to one another, and relentlessly missional, fully devoted to the Great Commission from Matthew 28. And we want to do all of these well. And it is not permissible for us to only do two of the three well. We see in the book of Revelation that the seven churches in Asia, the manner in which the evil one got a foothold in these churches was for them to focus on two, but not three of these missional values. So a couple examples, you got Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. They were missionally minded. They were serious about the mission, but they were biblically compromising. So they were kind of on the religious left. They were all about grace, not so much truth. And then the counter response to that, you have the church of Ephesus and Laodicea. They were biblically serious, but they were indifferent to the needs of others around them who were in desperate need of the grace of God. And so Satan got a foothold in each of these churches, not because they weren't living out some of these, but because they weren't living out all of these. And we don't want to do that here. So each of these three things need to be lived out in radical ways. So here's the three questions that I want us to walk through together this morning. The first is, how is God calling me to walk with him in discipleship? Remember, we are bringing mirror Bibles here, not binoculars. And so the question we have to ask at the very forefront is, what is God calling me to do? God, how are you calling me to live? A personal question. Number two, how is God calling us to walk with one another? And third and finally, how is God calling us to engage with the world that he loves? So let's look at this first question. How is God calling me to walk with him in discipleship? In many ways, this series, Human Sexuality in the Bible, isn't really about human sexuality at all. Not really. It's ultimately about two things. Number one, it is about your discipleship journey with Jesus. And number two, it is about you considering the cost of said discipleship with Jesus in every sphere of life. See, to be a follower of Jesus is to recognize that in my own life, I belong to God. But that's really, really hard for us to understand because we have this natural desire to be my own person. Like if I want to be my true, authentic self, I need to be autonomous. I need to belong to myself. I need to be able to make my own decisions to go where I want to go. And yet the walk with Jesus always starts with, I will deny myself, pick up my cross daily, and follow Jesus. 
And I will follow him even when I want to zig and he wants to zag. I'm going to say, I, God, I don't get this, but I'm going to follow you in this. I will yield to you. And so I say, I belong in life and in death, in body and in soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who I want to follow, even when I disagree. And so that's always the very first thing that we have to acknowledge. But again, it's, it's really hard to understand this in our world because we hate the idea of belonging to anything or anyone else. In preparation for this series, I read a book from Sam Albury called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, and he wrote something that I found quite compelling. He said this, it's hard to imagine anything more horrific than being owned by someone else. To find yourself belonging wholly to another, for some tragically, it does not require much imagination. A dear friend of mine was sold in sex slavery as a young woman. It was a period that left many physical and non-physical scars. It taught her to detach herself from her body. It was no longer hers. My body never belonged to me anyway. Everyone always took it, she told me recently. She was eventually able to escape and start a new life. And during the course of it all, she became a Christian. The words from the Bible have become precious to her. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. They have been true in an awful, dehumanizing sense, but now they are true in a life-giving and supremely dignifying sense. See, it always starts with the invitation to belong to Jesus. And right on the heels of that, every person in this room, everyone watching online, myself included, we have to consider the cost. Here's the question that, that I have to ask you this morning. Have you considered the cost of following Jesus? See, the controversy of being a Christian is the choice to surrender your entire life to Jesus. And that includes everything, your time, your finances, your gifts, the empire that you're building, your marriage, your sexuality. All of it needs to come under the person of Jesus. And as I've shared with you a couple times in this series, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Have you considered the cost? Have you considered the cost? A couple months ago, I was watching a debate between um, Justin Lee and Preston Sprinkle on the topic of homosexuality. You could probably find this online. It was very gracious, very nuanced. Um, but at one point in this debate, Justin Lee, who holds to the affirming position on the topic of homosexuality, he invited everyone to close their eyes. And he said, what, what would it look like if you heard a big, booming voice come down and he declared that all marriages, not just heterosexual marriages and homosexual marriages, but all marriages were now condemned and you could no longer be married. How would that feel? And in that moment, you felt like in, in the entire theater, you could hear a pin drop as he put the mirror back on us. And we considered the costliness. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to, to lay down your marriage in order to walk with Jesus? And it was a hard question. 
And it was really interesting because as I was thinking about that, I, I recognized the reason that he was sharing that is because he wanted people who were in heterosexual marriages to recognize the costliness of what you are inviting someone to do who has same-sex attraction to tell them you shouldn't get married or you can't get married. But as I thought about that question, I thought to myself, that is exactly what every single person, regardless of your sexual orientation, needs to consider. Would you, if a big booming voice came down and told you to give up something, would you give it up? Would you surrender your life to Jesus? Would you give it over to him? And I think that is an important question that every single person needs to consider. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is he the ruler of your life? Is Christ the ultimate priority in your life, even over your spouse, over your kids, over your sexuality, over the empire that you're building, over your time, or over any other good thing that you have? I think of the story of the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus, fully obedient to the law. And he says, Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions to the poor and then come and follow me. And then what happens? This rich young ruler, even though he's obeyed all the laws of God since he was a little boy, he leaves sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus tells the story. He says, I tell you the truth. It is easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to inherit eternal life. What's the principle? Are you willing to lay everything down for Jesus? everything for Jesus. I think of the story in Genesis chapter 2, which is perhaps one of the most difficult stories in the entire Bible in which Abraham is commanded by God to take his one and only son Isaac up to a mountain and to sacrifice his own son. And you imagine, like, could you do that? Would you be willing to do that? And so they start climbing up this mountain and his son Isaac says, Dad, where, where's the sacrifice for the burnt offering for the Lord? And I just picture this in my mind that he's fighting back tears and he says, the Lord will provide the lamb. The Lord will provide the lamb. And you have to realize that Isaac was the embodiment of all of his hopes and dreams. His legacy, his future, his descendants, and not only that, it was his son who he loved. But the question that remains is, Abraham, will you trust me and will you yield everything else to me? Will I be the ultimate authority of your life or will something else? Now here's the good news, friends. Most of the people in this room, just like Isaac, will not have to follow through on yielding and giving up those things, whether it be your marriage or your children or your finances or your business or any such thing. But the question remains, would you be willing? Would you be willing to do it? To lay it all down for the sake of Jesus, regardless of what he asks and so once again, with respect to our sexuality, we have to ask, am I willing to lay it all down? Am I willing to give it to Jesus? And for some of us, it might mean choosing to stay in a marriage that's been extremely challenging, even though it would be much easier to walk away. For others of us, it might mean remaining single when you have such deep desires for marriage. 
For others, it might mean taking great lengths to humble yourself and to ask for help because of the raging sexual desires that you have, and you realize, I just, I can't do it on my own. I need help, but I got pride. I don't want anyone else to know. And God is saying, walk into the light. There is life for you, but you need to have the humility to step out into it. For some of you, it might mean choosing to consider the practical embodiments of how you can encourage and bless others and that your home can be a haven of peace and of love for others who are struggling in their own desires or who are displaced or who do not have family and that you could be the family to them even though it would be much easier just to enjoy your own life. For others of you, it might be the decision to lay down the spiritual arms warfare motif and to pick up the persuasion motif to seek to help people to love and to serve Jesus. Every single person in this room needs to consider the practical embodiments of what it looks like to love and serve Jesus with our whole heart and with all of our lives. And I shared with you in the first week, do you remember that Thanksgiving table we all started with? Friends, they're all here. They're all in this room. They're all watching online. They're all here. And the question is, will we be the family of God to one another? Will we walk with one another in our distorted sexual desires, in our challenges, and in our discouragement? Each and every one of us are called to come and to die to Jesus. And I promise you that if you catch this vision of Jesus, it is going to be so incredibly difficult <laughs> it's going to be so hard. It's going to be messy. But you see the cost. You see the cost because then you catch this vision of what Abraham says to his son Isaac when he says, the Lord himself will provide the lamb. And there we see it in the Gospel of John when John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His name is Jesus. And he died for you. For you. And see, those to whom have been forgiven much, they forgive much. And those who have been forgiven little, forgive little. And to the extent that you understand this principle, you will become a compassionate person. You will love your neighbor as you love yourself. You will realize that apart from the intervening work of Jesus, you would not be saved. You would be alone. You would be separated from God. And it is only through the work of Jesus that you can be saved. I promise you that if you catch this vision, you will be such a compassionate person. But it all starts with your mirror Bible. It all starts right here. So walk with Jesus, my friends. He wants to disciple you in your sexuality. It all starts with this. And then we can springboard to the next two questions. Because admittedly, the world is a confusing place to try to live as a faithful follower of Jesus. Here's where the difficulty comes. What do we do when we live in a culture that doesn't believe in the precepts of this book, that doesn't treat the word of God as authoritative and true? What does it look like to follow Jesus in a Babylonian world? or in a Canadian world. 
what does it look like to follow Jesus today? And so let's look at the second question with respect to being uh, relentlessly missional. How is God calling us to engage in the world that he loves? And so I want to help you think very practically about this with a, a few questions to ask yourself when it comes to living out God's mission in the world. Three questions to ask yourself before you respond to a question of morality and sexuality within our culture. Here's the first question. If you're taking notes, consider writing this down. Am I more focused on how I'm being treated than how I am treating others? I think this is a real temptation. And so I want us to look again at the words of Titus. Uh, Jonathan already read them to us. So let's have them fresh in our mind again when it says these words. Let's take a look at this. Paul says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to always be gentle toward your friends. To always be gentle toward people you like. To always be gentle toward those who agree with all of your opinions. Is that what your Bible says? To always be gentle toward everyone. <laughs> toward everyone. And I think this is just such an important verse for us to consider whenever we look at this. So Paul, he's giving instruction to a disciple named Titus. He's on the island of Crete and in Greece. He's setting up churches with elders in environments that, that are no friend to Christianity. Much like today, sound familiar? No friend to Christianity. And again, look at the instruction that we see here. Do whatever is good, slander no one, be peaceable, be considerate, always be gentle toward everyone. And this is the great model response to us in an environment that doesn't have the same worldview and authority that we do as Christians. And then Paul, he gives his rationale for doing this. And again, I want you to remember everything we learned in that first question. We got our mirror Bibles open. We see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see Jesus and what he has done for us. And to the extent that we have been forgiven, much forgiveness will be given. It makes us compassionate people. And then Paul says this, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and in envy, being hated and hating one another. So why should we respond this way? Why should we do that? Because before we met Christ, we were the same way. We were living in the same kind of stuff, banging our heads on all the same things. And those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. That's how we should live. And I think these verses provide a great context for how we should conduct ourselves with respect to issues of morality, issues of sexuality within our culture today. And I think it's very easy for us when we feel mistreated because of what we believe to get very loud about that. And I just don't think that helps. I don't think it helps. Notice that Paul doesn't provide an indictment on how the rulers or the authorities are treating them, when he could have said that. He could have said things like, like they shouldn't treat us that way, and we got to fight for our rights, and we got to fight for our freedoms. That's the most important thing here. He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he says, here's how we should treat them. 
Here's how we should treat them. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, or 5, verse 10. It says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you or persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In other words, Jesus warned us. He told us that this would happen. And he says, you are blessed if you are persecuted. Blessed if you are turned down. Blessed if you have spit on your face. Because of Jesus. And so you you might say something like, okay, I'm blessed, but does that mean I should be happy about it? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. Now, Paul's not saying that you should rejoice and be glad about the fact that you're getting persecuted or you're getting pushed back upon. He's saying rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. I told you this would come. I told you this would happen. Rejoice, Christian. The Lord is using you in these dark, grimy spaces within the world to bring forth light and life. And yeah, you might get some spit on your face. It might happen. But just remember, they're doing that to you because of me. Because of me. So rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they will also persecute you. Now, we aren't again, to to celebrate this, and it doesn't mean that we can't be involved in politics or in advocacy. Uh, I'm not saying that. I think it's actually really good for you to do that. You know, we're Reformed Christians, every square inch. You should be involved in society and in the world. You should try to make good changes. But you should also consider the methods with which you use as you go about doing that. So here's a way of thinking about this. Consider writing this down. We should surprise those we disagree with by how well we treat them. By how well we treat them. We should treat them with the fruit of the Spirit, with such incredible kindness and gentleness, with peace and with patience, that they are shocked, totally shocked. And then they go like, why do they act that way? Like, What's going on in their world that compels them to do something like that? What's the authority that they're living by? What worldview or perspective that they, uh, do they have which makes them such incredibly compassionate people? I want to learn more. Boom, opportunity to walk with them and for them to hear the message of Jesus. And that leads to the second question. Am I more in- involved in moralizing non-Christians than witnessing to them? Personally, I think it does very little good to moralize a culture on their way to a Christless eternity, frankly. I just, I don't, I don't see the win there. That doesn't make much sense to me. If we expect people who don't follow Christ to obey Christ, then we create more difficulties than solutions. Because once again, he who has been forgiven much forgives much. And he who has been forgiven little forgives little. And so the opportunity that we have isn't warfare, it's persuasion. I want them to see Jesus. Because if I can introduce them to Jesus, I know that Jesus will take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. I know that Jesus will reveal himself to them. And if they can see Jesus, then what has happened to me might happen to them. That they start walking with Jesus and acting like Jesus. And I think that can be a beautiful thing.
And so ask yourself that second question. And then question number three, am I committed to suffering well? I just think the pressure here is, is going to get a lot more intense, not less. And I'm not trying to be all doomsday on you. I just think it's going to be really difficult. And I recognize that for some of you who are old enough to remember, you know, when you were going to public school back in the day and even in a public school setting, they, they were praying and they were doing devotions and there were premiers and prime ministers who were getting on the radio and they were given little sermonettes, you know, like those were the days far more Christianized, more Judeo-Christian values here in Canada. It was more comfortable and you didn't feel the angst when you walked out your door and you, everyone else seemed to be doing what you were doing. It was easier. And I recognize, friends, it's much more difficult today than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But that is the time that God has given us. And we have an opportunity to let the light of Jesus shine. But it has everything to do with what our motives are, what our goals are with respect to these topics. So ask yourself, am I more focused on how I'm being treated than how I'm treating others? Am I more interested in moralizing non-Christians than inviting them to know Jesus? And am I committed to suffering well? And if we're to catch this vision, I think we should spend the majority of our time today looking at the example of Jesus. I want you to see how Jesus responds when it comes to these, what you might call grace versus truth environments. And so if you got your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 7, an incredible story. This is, this is like, it surprises me that this story is even in the Bible. So Jesus is hanging out with a Pharisee and a prostitute. Okay, one of the craziest stories in the whole Bible, and yet, I think you'll see by the end of this, also one of the most beautiful. And here's the question that I think we should consider. Who is this Jesus where the Pharisees want to eat with him and the prostitutes want to be around him? Who is Jesus? So let's look at this. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36, it says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with them, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came with an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. So I don't want you to miss the controversy of what is happening here. Jesus is in the house of a Pharisee. The prostitute comes in. She stands behind Jesus. And then she's crying so much that there's enough liquid to wash Jesus' dirty, grimy, stinky feet with her tears. She takes her own hair and she dries Jesus' feet with her hair. And then she kisses his feet and pours perfume on Jesus' feet. Just to kind of give you a sense of the controversy of this story, could you imagine if uh, there are a bunch of pastors at a prayer breakfast, and then a lady of the night comes in, everyone knows who she is, and she makes a beeline for one pastor in particular, and then she starts to do this. What are all the other pastors thinking about? How does this woman know you? <laughs> what is she doing? And why is she at your feet? This would be controversial. And in this moment, I think that we start to feel the tension of the story 
And we start to feel the two different responses that we're just going to get to in just a little bit. We, we have the religious right response. We have the, the Christ against culture response. The, the truth without grace response. The response to immediately condemn. We feel that pressure. And it's revealed to us in verse 39. Here's what it says. When the Pharisee who had invited him to uh, uh, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So we, we learned all the way back in week one of the series that the mentality of the Pharisees was that holiness was defined as distance from sin. And I showed you a bit of a graph, right? So we had the temple cult and Pharisee plan. They wanted to exploit the vulnerable and they wanted to cut off those who were far from God. So tax collectors, prostitutes, pimps, uh, sinners, they were not even permitted, permitted to enter into the temple because holiness meant distancing yourself from sin. And you couldn't associate yourself with sinful people. They would defile you, in a sense, by association. And therefore, they said, we got to cut off those who are far from God. You can't, like, it's kind of like telling sick people, you can't come to this hospital, go somewhere else. Only the well can come into the space because we're trying to remain holy and steadfast. And then Jesus comes along, he says, no, the, the motif here for gospel citizens is care for the vulnerable and a choice to run after those who are far from God. That's the motif. And so Jesus breaks down the religious right response. However, it's also in this instance that we kind of feel the pressure to do the opposite instinct, right? The opposite instinct. We see Jesus' response. He first gives a really challenging story of the nature of forgiveness, and then he says these words picking up at verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus says, do you see the woman? Do you really see her? Friends, let me ask you, do you see the woman? Or do you see an issue, a problem to be dealt with, an inappropriate scene, something to recoil from? The Pharisees were frustrated with Jesus because Jesus didn't recoil in disgust. He didn't pull his feet away. He didn't say, what are you doing? And rebuke her or send her away. Jesus lets it happen. It's controversial because Jesus very clearly is different than our truth without grace response. And so in this series, we said that this is what we're talking about. All the way back in week one, we said we're, we're not going to focus so much on the widow. We're not going to focus so much on the same-sex attracted teenager or the transgender woman or the, the porn-addicted man or the divorced woman or the single person or the married person. We're going to focus on how God is calling us to live in relation to those people. People. 
Jesus says, do you see the woman? Truly, 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 do you see the woman, the person who is made in God's image and in his likeness? And it's in this place, in this moment, that we feel that kind of the counter instinct, right? Do you feel it? Do you feel that counter instinct? Instinct number two, that is the religious left response. The Christ accepts culture response. The grace without truth response. The instinct to immediately say, yeah, Jesus, hate those Pharisees. You know, you got this woman and she's bursting in on the scene in front of all the Pharisees. Justin, or Jesus, that is a Freudian slip right there. Jesus, he doesn't condemn the woman, right? Can't believe I said Justin, that's terrible. Forgive me, Jesus. But we see that Jesus is, you know, he's all cool with it. He's, he's okay with this. Oh, no, that, that's not what is happening here. Look more closely. Look more closely at the story. The woman is in tears. Why is the woman in tears? Because she hates her life. And she wants a new one. She wants a new life. And from here, Jesus calls her a sinner. He forgives her. He does not condone her behavior. She's trying to find a way out of a sinful life. She doesn't want that life. She wants a new one. And Jesus gives her a new life. See, we have such a a different idea of what grace is than what the the biblical text intends. Grace literally means unmerited favor. And so grace teaches us to say no to ungodly desires because we know that they'll lead to brokenness. And Jesus doesn't want that for you. I've shared with you many times as your pastor in the last four years, it's not just that we serve some sort of divine dictator up in the sky who's saying, don't do this, don't do that, arbitrarily. He's saying, I made you in a particular way. And if you follow this way, it will lead to flourishing. And if you don't, it'll destroy your life. I don't want that for you. See, oftentimes our version of grace, it's, it's like a cheap substitute for God's godly grace. Oftentimes, it's self-effacing. The reason why we want to be gracious to people is because we want to be non-confrontational. We don't want to rock the boat. We want to let everyone know, I'm cool with it. Everything's cool. Everything's fine. I don't want any spit on my face. I don't want anyone angry with me. That sort of grace is a placebo. But Jesus' grace is medicine. Jesus' grace is medicine. He's calling you to something greater, something more beautiful than what the grace of the world often commends. God's grace is a balm to a weary soul. So Jesus, he refuses to fall into the trap of condemnation, the truth response, and he refuses to fall into the trap of celebration, the grace response. Instead, Jesus says this, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, forgives little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. 
Go in peace. So here's the reality, friends. Because we live in an age of polarization, there's this natural tendency, once again, uh, to one of these two sides, to the left or to the right, to grace or to truth, to celebration or to condemnation. And then, naturally, you generally have one group that is all about truth, and you have another that is all about grace. And in the midst of that, here's the temptation, and it happens all the time. Almost always, a third group emerges. And the third group can be defined as, can't we all just be friends? Can we all just get along? Is that okay? Like, I know you have disagreements, and you have disagreements, and they're all, they're all valid, and they're all important, but can't we all just get along? And then we hedge the grace of God and we hedge the truth of God and it looks a little bit like this. this. I think this is how we often think about it. We gotta be some sort of nuanced third way here. Not, not too truthy, not, not too gracey, somewhere in the middle and that's where we gotta be. And it sounds really good. It sounds nuanced. Some sort of third way so that we can all get along. But I want to propose to you that the radical nature of Jesus is not celebration, it's not condemnation, and it's not a nuanced third way. I think it should look more like this. That's the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. That we would be compassionate with people and people, they're, they're not a formula, they're not an ideology, people are not a theology or an issue, they're people, and, and people are complicated. You know this. Oftentimes in their sanctification journey, it's two steps forward, three steps back, right? They're just banging their heads on things, and they're not moving in the way that you want them to move, and it's not progressive in the way you want it to be. They don't, uh, compassion of Jesus doesn't meet you when, you know, you have time in your calendar. It's a mess, and we have to fight that, that natural instinct for us to say, you know what, I just want to live in solidarity with like-minded people, so I'm going to find my camp. I'm going to find my camp. And to fight against that natural instinct that says, i got to find some sort of third way, some gracious third way. The way of Jesus is that Pharisees want to eat with him and prostitutes want to be around him. Why? Why? Because he invites them to something greater. Something more beautiful. That he is filled with grace. And filled with truth. And once again, we are to be like Jesus. And friends, that is what the world needs today. More of this. More of this. If we want to be a witness in the world, we have to embrace the controversy of Jesus. And with all due respect, if there is no controversy in your life, I just have to ask, what bits of the gospel have you pulled out? In honoring of Tim Keller, got to share a Tim Keller quote with you today. He said this, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Ouch, man. Ann Lemmett says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. So which Jesus are you following? Which Jesus are you following? 
Whose disciple are you? I want you to embrace the controversy of Jesus. And that leads to our third and final question. How is God calling us to walk with one another? Last week, I ended with a quote from Joseph Hellerman, and he said this, the idea of salvation cannot be reduced to a personal relationship with Jesus. God's plan is more encompassing. God intends salvation to be a community-creating event. See, one of the reasons why we have such difficulty in addressing human sexuality in the church, I think, is because we're just so individualistic. We're so focused on ourselves. So think about this with me. Why do you think it's so hard for us to talk about topics like homosexuality and divorce and remarriage and transgenderism? Why is it so hard for us to talk about these sorts of topics? Well, I'd like to propose to you it's because we don't have a really good theology of marriage and singleness. Why don't we have a good theology of marriage and singleness? It's because we don't have a good theology of the body. And why don't we have a good theology of the body? Because we haven't captured the vision of Jesus where discipleship and devotion to God are a community-creating event. It has to do with the entire community leaning in on each other and loving each other like Jesus loved us. So I ended last week with, um, with this slide. If we could take a look at the next slide, please. The slide of uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament vision for the people of God. And so the people of Israel, they were caught up in the vision outlined in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which was all about the nuclear family, and then bearing children, and then obedience in the land, which was obedience in the earthly kingdom. God, you gave me this promised land. I have to obey within it. And if I do that, then I can enjoy the tangible blessings that you have placed upon me. And I want to be a holy person, fully set apart from evil. I want to be devoted to good, and that was the motif in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, it's not at the expense of the nuclear family, I'm not doing away with it, but I'm expanding it. So for you to now see that it's all about the spiritual family. It's all about new spiritual birth, inviting others into the journey for them to see the love of Jesus, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Total devotion to the kingdom of God, knowing that life is short and eternity is long, and we should live that way as the people of God to catch the radical vision that the world is much more than what we see. There's something greater that God is calling us to, and that we would, in so doing, bear eternal fruit. That's the vision. And I just want to share with you, I think that's the key in all of this. Much more than talking about what's your position on homosexuality? What's your position on transgenderism? What's your position on divorce? And as we've done for the last eight weeks, I've, I've tried to the best of my ability to walk you through the position statements. But more than that, more than that, it's inviting others on the discipleship journey with Jesus. It's, I want, I want you to experience the joy that I have found. I'm walking with Jesus on the road. Would you like to join me? Would you like to walk with me? And I will walk with you in this. It's always an invitation. Because as I've shared with you before, people need love like they need oxygen. And shame on us if people who are struggling with their sexuality are finding a greater sense of home and a greater sense of love than the church. 
we should be the place, not a place, the place where they can experience the radical love of Jesus. And we could walk with them in their discipleship journey. And I've shared with you before, not to toot your own horn, but you can be those things. I have seen that in you, the way in which you love Jesus, the way in which you love your neighbor. You can be those things. We can be those things to one another. Andy Crouch, he wrote this, he said, our homes can become creative centers far more consequential than the refuges of consumption and leisure that we have let them become. And from these new households, we can begin to extend recognition of personhood to those most in danger of being overlooked. And then he says this, this is amazing. All real change starts with the number of people who can sit around a table in a singular household. Do you see the woman? Do you see the man? Or are you more interested in issues? I hope you would see the woman. And I recognize that, that some of you, you long for this. You're displaced. You're struggling. You feel the loneliness. And so you want to lean in. And we want to be that to you. And others of you, you might be saying, oh, Justin, I, I feel like I already have that. You know, like I have a tightly knit family. I have friends. I, I have everything that I need. And I recognize that. But we need you. We need you. And so when you step into these spaces, when you open up your homes, when you join people in small groups, when you pray for each other and encourage each other and bless each other and cry with each other, and when given permission, you identify the, the blind spots in their life and say, I think Jesus is calling you to this. When we do that, we are going to see the flourishing of human beings. That baby's agreeing with me. I'm just telling you. So in so doing, we captured the vision that Paul laid out for us last week. Drawing our hearts away from our present circumstances, allowing our eyes to be lifted and to see the great vision that Jesus has laid up for us, that we would live in such a way to show that, you're, that you understand that there's a greater reality and a greater purpose for your life than your business or even your marriage or your parenting or your money or any other thing. But the priority of your life is Jesus. Jesus is the priority of your life in all that he has called you to. The way of Jesus is incredible compassion tied to his grace that, that carries us through to want to walk with Jesus on the road of discipleship. That's that. And so in that way, all people, single people, those who are born eunuchs, those who become eunuchs, those who choose to become spiritual eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God, for widows and divorced people and single people with same-sex attraction, for men and women with gender dysphoria, for people who are far from home, people who long to get married but remain unmarried, for lost people, lonely people, and people who have caught the vision of the kingdom of God and want to share their gifts with the entire church and family of God, all of us together creating a sense of home and community for one another. And with God's help, we can be those things. Here's how I want to end today. I thought it would be fitting for us to end by this, this whole series by reciting 
the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one. And so we're gonna put up on the screen here, big bold letters, I'll ask the question, and I invite you to respond with enthusiasm to this answer. Friends, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our Human Sexuality series, finding biblical answers to questions about sex and marriage, orientation, singleness, and more. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway. Gateway.